Well, this evening we're continuing our series going through Matthew's Gospel and picking out particular themes. And uh, as James mentioned, tonight we're looking at this whole subject of confidence. Now, I want to share with you a true story. I was starting my second year at high school. That is me. Uh, I know, I was a good-looking chap. What happened? Um, but I was age 12, and uh, I was in my equivalent of S2 at school, and I was elected a junior school prefect. Uh, this meant severe power complex, and uh, I was able to keep the chess club in line. Um, they, were, they were a pretty hard lot. Uh, it meant keeping the dinner queue in line. That was, that was tough. It also meant that you got to the front of the dinner queue and had your dinner first. Uh, so there were some perks of being a junior school prefect. But one of the things that we had to do as junior school prefects, apart from wear a little silver badge in our lapel that gave us power and control over S1s, um, and meant that we were derided by those people from S3 above, um, was that we had to read in assembly. And there was a rotor put up as to who was to read an assembly. And as chance happens, I was the first junior school prefect down for the first assembly on the first Friday of term. And the deputy head of the junior school asked if he could rehearse it with me the afternoon before. So for two days, every night I went home and, and read the passage, which happened to be the passage that we're looking at tonight. And I read through the passage, and I wasn't a Christian, but I just read through the passage out loud with my parents. And then came the time at about half past two, just before home time, uh, on the Thursday afternoon, the night before I was due to give the reading the next morning in assembly, where I stood at the front of the school hall and the deputy head of the junior school stood right at the back. And I began to read. Ask, and it will be given to you. Knock, and the door will be opened. Seek, and you will find. From the back, the deputy head's hand went up. He said, um, Richards, can I stop you? I said, yes, sir. He said, could you try it again? But could you try reading it with a little less confidence? <laughs> could you try reading it as though you weren't so sure that what Jesus actually said would happen? Now, I was not a Christian. I was a 12-year-old sprog at a junior school prefect. I hadn't got a clue. But I thought that the words of Jesus were very clear. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. But not according to the theology of the deputy head of my school. He said, no, it's not that simple. You can't be that confident. Confidence is a funny thing. Confidence can aspire or inspire a sports team to play really well or above their natural abilities. 
while a lack of confidence can drain a team of the ability to string two passes together. Um, as an England football fan, uh, watching England play Iceland this summer, I know, much to the amusement of Scottish football fans, you could see the confidence drain out of the England football team. People who were paid thousands, hundreds of thousands of pounds a week to play football could not pass a ball from one person to the other. When the ball was coming towards them, it was as though somebody had lifted a string and they lifted their foot and the ball went underneath because they were so lacking in confidence. On the other hand, confidence, when it starts to grow in a sports team, can inspire people to incredible heights. Look at some of the British Olympians or Paralympians who have just been so inspired by each other winning medals that they have far surpassed their expectations. Confidence is a really funny thing. The lack of it can make people shrink at parties. Some of you, even this week, if you're a fresher at university, have lacked confidence. You've gone into a social context, a, a social setting, and it appears that everybody else in the room has so much more confidence than you. Maybe you've started a new job in the last couple of weeks, and you've gone into your new office, and everybody else on that graduate scheme, everybody else around you in that office appear to have so much more confidence than you do. Maybe you've tried to bluff it. Maybe you've tried to appear more confident than you actually are. But the reality is that inside, you're lacking confidence. The lack of confidence can drain the life out of us. Being overconfident, well, that can be really annoying and bring about the self-destruction of a football manager or indeed even a politician. Confidence is a delicate thing. Not enough and we struggle too much and we become arrogant. Individually, the lack of self-confidence is something that affects us all. Uh, Johnny Depp, the actor, spoke for many in a recent interview when he observed this. Covering myself up in makeup, it's easier to look at someone else. It's easier to look at someone else's face than your own, I think, for everyone. You wake up in the morning and you brush your teeth and you're like, ugh, that idiot, again, you're still here. What do you want? Hiding. I think it's important, said Deb. It's important for your sanity, I guess. And it's quite striking how many actors actually hate watching themselves on television or film. They can't bear to watch themselves because there is some degree to which each of them is hiding behind the character that they've assumed. As they put on the makeup, as they put on the costume, that helps them to be somebody else other than they really are. And all around us at the same time, we can see overconfidence, even in a whole culture. Apparently in 1950, Gallup, the research people, asked a high group of high school students in America, are you a very important person? In 1950, 12% of high school students in America said yes. 
When Gallup repeated that question in 2005 to a similar group of high school students, rather than 12% saying they were a VIP, 80% said they were a VIP. Huge change in confidence and not necessarily in a good way. But what about when it comes to God? What is the right amount of confidence when we think of ourselves in relation to God? When can we be tempted to be overconfident in our relationship with God? And when sometimes are we lacking in confidence in our relationship with God? Well, if you've got a Bible or if you've got a smartphone, turn back to that passage that Alistair read for us a few moments ago. It's taken from towards the end of what's called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Someone said it's the best known and the least applied talk that has ever been given. It's only three chapters long in our Bibles. Um, The context is Jesus talking to his followers. He's talking to the 12 people, the 12 men that he'd chosen to be his disciples, to be his followers. But at the same time, um, he's delivering it in a sort of natural amphitheatre. Biblical scholars and commentators reckon they know precisely uh, the place where Jesus probably delivered this Sermon on the Mount. And it's a sort of a bowl uh, of, of, of a valley where the, the place acts as a natural amphitheatre. And so even though Jesus is talking to just a to few people, these 12 people, there are thousands of people eavesdropping, listening in to what Jesus is saying to his closest friends, his closest followers. Now what Jesus isn't doing is laying down how people in some way should should live in life. It isn't a general treatise on morality or, or, or methodology as to how Jesus says that we should live as human beings. Rather, because Jesus is talking to his 12 closest friends and followers, even though there are these thousands who are listening in, what Jesus is describing all the way through Matthew chapter 6 and 7 and 8 Uh, is is what's been described as the ethics of the kingdom. What he's describing to his 12 disciples is what life should look like when we belong to the kingdom of God. It isn't a general talk that he's giving to everybody. It's a talk that he's addressing to the 12 people that he has chosen to be his followers. And what he's saying is, this is how I want you to think. This is how I want you to act. This is how I want you to react. This is how I want you to live. This is how I want you to pray. And the key verse in understanding the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew chapter 6 and verse 8. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 8, Jesus draws a parallel between the followers that he's talking to, the disciples, and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And he says in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 8, Do not be like them. Do not be like them. And what Jesus is doing is drawing a distinction, a comparison between how he wants his followers to live as they show their allegiance to the kingdom of God, as they live under the rule of God, and contrast that with the sincere and devout but wrong theology of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. 
He's saying don't pray like them, don't think like them, don't judge like them, don't think like them towards money, don't think like them towards relationships, don't think like them towards marriage, don't behave like them towards sex, don't think like them towards all sorts of things. All these subjects, revenge and murder and swearing and all this stuff that's in the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying do not be like them. He's saying, I want you as my followers to lead lives that are distinctively and qualitatively different. Distinctive. Different. Do not be like them. He's saying that they're following Jesus and their allegiance to Jesus and their living under the rule of God and the kingdom of God should affect every area of their lives whether it's money or sex or religion or language or revenge or materialism or careers or stress or anxiety, every part of their life should show other people that Jesus is their king and that they belong to the kingdom of God. And what was true for the followers that Jesus was talking to in the Sermon on the Mount is also true for his followers today. So Jesus is saying to you and to me, do not be like them. One of the things that should characterise people who claim to be Christ followers is that our lives will be different to the people around us. Whether it's in Freshers Week, whether it's at school or college or university, whether it's on the sports field, whether it's the way we think about our work, whether it's the way we think about our relationships and our friendships or our marriage or our parenting or our relationship with our parents, they should be different and they should be distinctive, Jesus says. Do not be like them. The question is, do our lives, do our diaries, do our bank accounts, our carbon footprints, our social media history, do they tell other people that we belong to the kingdom of God? and that our lives are distinctively different. And what Jesus is teaching is that confidence in our relationship with God is absolutely key to living the lives that God wants us to live. And as he nears the end of this sermon, this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus turns to relationships. And so in what we call chapter 7 and verses 1 to 6, he speaks about the need for clear relationships with people. And having addressed relationships with people, he now turns to how we as human beings, how as people who claim to be Christ followers, how we relate to God. And that's where he gives these simple analogies. Verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. You see, 43 years later, I can't but help say those words with the same confidence that I was told off for before I read it that first time in that assembly, age 12. It is clear, and it is confident. Now, it does assume some things. Remember, Jesus is talking to his followers. He's talking to people that he has called out. He's talking to people that he has chosen. He's talking to people who claim to be Christ followers. 
So these words assume that you are a follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ. They assume that you do pray persistently and seriously. The tense of the words in the Greek New Testament is that of the present imperative. It's, it's an order. But it's an order that implies a constant repetition. That's implied in what Jesus is saying. And it also assumes that you recognise and accept and believe God's sovereignty. That he is the one who is in charge. He is the creator, as we were looking at this morning in our 9 and 11 o'clock sermon series. The God that we believe in, the God that we follow, is the one who made the entire universe. But he's also the one that calls us, his creatures, part of his creation, into a relationship with him. And even though this God that we believe in is the God who is, is the God of the entire universe, and as far as we can tell, and, and it might even be the case, the God of multiverses, that there are other universes out there that we know nothing of, this God of the entire galaxy and Milky Way and the God who, 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 who threw planets and stars into existence, that this God who made this amazing creation is also a God who knows us individually and by name. Who, according to Jesus elsewhere in his teaching, knows the numbers of the hair on our heads. He knows the numbers. He knows how many hairs we have or would like to have (laughs) on our heads. And there's that sense of the closeness of God. When Jesus at the start of the the Sermon on the Mount uh, teaches what we refer to as the Lord's Prayer and begins, this is how you should pray, our Father in heaven. He wasn't teaching our Father in heaven. To a Jewish mind, heaven starts just above your head. What he's saying is that your Father, your heavenly Father, is that close. If you put your hand just above your head, just now, go on, try it. Just above your head, that is where God is. Our Father in heaven, your God is that close. So the God that we believe in, the God that we follow, the God that we pray to, is this amazing God who's the God of the entire universe. But he's a God who's that close. And a God who knows us individually. Now in these Words that Jesus gives his followers. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. There is, interestingly, no suggestion in these verses that the answers or the outcome that God responds with depends upon us asking hard enough or with the right words or with the right amount of faith. Now, you will often hear that teaching in some circles. People will say, if you pray with the right amount of faith, or if you pray with the right words, or if you pray for long enough and hard enough with the right group of people, then God will answer your prayer. That isn't what Jesus says here. He simply says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. If we ask, Jesus says, with no hidden motive, we will receive. 
If we seek with no hidden motive, we will find. If we knock with no value judgments, the door will be opened to us. So that's the first thing that we can be confident of. God hears our prayers. And what we bring to God matters to God. Now in prayer, there is this sort of um, paradox going on, that it's us sharing what matters to us, but it's also God sharing what matters to him with us. It's a two-way thing, prayer. But what we share with God, no matter how small it might seem to us, no matter how insignificant it might seem to us, or no matter how large it might seem to us, that matters to God. If things matter to us, they matter to God. So we can be confident that God hears us, but we can also be confident, verses 9 to 11, that God will not refuse, mock or answer by giving us things that are not good for us. Jesus uses this analogy. He says, verses 9 to 11, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? The analogy is a bit like Jesus saying, imagine it's Christmas Day. Imagine years from now you're celebrating my birthday. And imagine that you've asked Father Christmas for a particular present. You unwrap the present and there's a stone that's been wrapped up and placed underneath the Christmas tree. You wanted a PlayStation. You wanted whatever. And you've got a stone. It'd be quite hard to to look across the, the living room and go, thanks, just what I wanted. A stone. I haven't got one of these. Or you open up the wrapping on Christmas Day and... There's a snake. Imagine your reaction. Great, a snake. Again, I wasn't expecting one of those. Jesus is saying, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, well, how much more will your heavenly Father give good things to those who ask him? These verses, though clear and simple on one level, actually go very, very deep. They go to the heart of profound questions of how we view God, of how we view ourselves, and what we really can be confident of. Now, as I say, we can be confident of several things. We can be confident of the God that we pray to. We can be confident, as James led us through that time of confession earlier in the service, That if we acknowledge our sins, then the Bible says God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Very clear logic. God is faithful and just. That's who God is. If we confess our sins, he will cleanse us from our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess say that we're sorry, acknowledge it before God, then God forgives us. That's one thing that we can be confident of. 
we can know that assurance of forgiveness. We can be confident, secondly, that God hears our prayers and that our prayer will be answered. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16 reminds us that we can have confidence that through Jesus we can approach God and ask him for things. We can have confidence, the writer of the Hebrew says. But the flip side of that is that we don't presume that we will get everything that we ask for, or indeed that we should dictate to God what we should receive. And we have to accept that we won't get everything we ask for. You see, even on a human level, if a child was to keep on asking their parent for something, or for lots of things, and every time that child asked for something, the parent was to to give in and, and give that child everything that that child wanted, well, even on a human level, we know what that looks like. We would say that child is spoiled, a spoiled brat. If every time a child asked for something, a parent gave that child everything that that child wanted, that child would quickly become a spoiled brat. And it's the same with God. If God is a heavenly father, if God is a perfect father, if God is the best father that this world has ever or will ever see, then it stands to reason that he will not give us everything that we ask for. Because if a human parent doesn't give a child everything that they ask for, why should God give his children everything that they ask for? Iona, my daughter, who you saw earlier on uh, with Rachel on the stage, and I apologise for a sort of Richard's show uh, going on this evening. Um, Iona has a special way of asking for something. Uh, When I hear the words, hey, pappy, she knows it. I've asked her permission to share this. She knows it, and I know it, what exactly is going on. It's a sort of code. It's a sort of shorthand. It's her special word for me. Nobody else calls me Pappy, James. <laughs> when Iona calls me Pappy, I'm probably more likely to listen. Because I'm her dad. But I'm not going to give Iona everything that she asks for. <laughs> Because it doesn't work like that. Because I'm married to Kathy. <laughs> and I know who is boss in our household. But it wouldn't be good for Iona if I gave her everything that she asked for. In the same way, God, our Heavenly Father, will not give us everything that we ask for. But we can be confident that God does hear our prayers. But our response to how we pray and how our prayers are answered also reveals some very deep things about how we view God and how we view ourselves. I loved seeing Mike Pilavachi's tweet this week about six ways he believes that God answers prayer. And I think what Mike said in his tweet this week is true. 
He says, basically, God answers prayer in six ways. Yes, no, not yet, you be the answer, trust me, and one final one, are you kidding? <laughs> so yes, no, not yet, you be the answer, trust me, are you kidding? Maybe in the next few months, I will help you with Nathan. Will also be an answer that Mike hears as he prays, because Nathan, my son, is going to be Mike's intern uh, for the next 12 months. But how do we react when God answers prayer differently to how we thought God should answer our prayers? Maybe you've prayed for something for years, and the answer has been no, or not yet, or trust me. Maybe you've prayed for something for years and actually what God is saying to you is, you be the answer. You've come to me and you've asked and you've asked and you've asked, but actually it's blindingly obvious what you should do. You need to be the answer to your prayer. Yes, no, not yet, trust me. You be the answer. And then finally, are you kidding? Do you really want me to give you that? Because God knows that actually if we were to get that, it wouldn't be the best for us. And it wouldn't help us. And it wouldn't develop our character. Are we still willing to believe that God is our Heavenly Father who wants the best for us and knows better than we do? The writer Philip Yancey observed this paradox about prayer. He said this, If prayer stands as the place where God and human beings meet, then I must learn about prayer. Most of my struggles in the Christian life circle around two themes. Why God doesn't act the way we want God to, and why I don't act the way God wants me to. And prayer is the precise point where those two themes converge. So confidence. This evening, do we have confidence in God? Do we really believe that God wants the best for us? Do you really believe that God wants the best for you? That he is your heavenly father, the perfect father, the best father there has ever been. Do you really believe that however God answers you, it's the right answer? Even if the answer is not yet or trust me, are you willing to wait? And are you willing to have that confidence, not in yourself, but in God and his will for your life? Or maybe... This evening, you just feel as though you need more confidence. You need more confidence in yourself. You need more confidence in God. You need to be able to trust him. What I find interesting in, in Luke's version of this teaching is when Jesus uses this analogy of the stone and, and the bread and the fish and the snake and, and if you who are evil knows how to give good things to your children, how much more would the Heavenly Father give good things to you? He then goes on to say, well, that's how it is with God and the Holy Spirit. 
how much more will God the Heavenly Father give his Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to those who ask him? And the inference is clear. If we need more confidence, if we need strength to be able to live those distinctive, different lives, if we need to show in our lives and the way that we think and the way that we act and the way that we spend our money and the way that we think about relationships and the way we think about possessions and materialism, if we recognise this evening that we need more of God to live the life that God wants us to live, then Jesus is saying to you and to me this evening, if you who are evil, relatively, know how to give good gifts to your children, well, how much more will God the Father give the Spirit to those who ask him? God says, you want more power in your life? You want more love? You want more hope? You want more peace? You want more gentleness? You want more kindness? You want more trust? You want more faith? And come and ask. Because if you know how to give good gifts to your children, well, how much more will God the Father who is a much better father than I will ever be, who's a much better father than any father that this world has ever seen, how much more will he give good things to his children?